beautiful people, and welcome to the Glorious in the Mundane podcast. I'm your host, Christy Knuckles. I feel like all the world is in this weird in-between of emerging a little bit more, but anywhere that we emerge to, it's all different and weird. So I hope that just for a few minutes today, that this podcast can feel a little bit like a piece of normalcy and home as we still try to figure out if we should be hunkered down or having a party, that some of the areas of our lives are at least in trying to get back to normal mode. All that said, welcome home. I'm grateful that we do have this place to connect and just feel a little bit ourselves. Before we get started, I wanted to say how blown away I am that so many of you responded to taking piano lessons with me this whole next year. It's a learn at your own pace type thing, and I just wanted to tell you that I am going to start in June. And since we all can't possibly sit in a classroom together, I promised a hashtag so that we can keep up with each other's progress. And here it is. Ready? Hashtag piano this pandemic. This is us responding to these crazy times together with something useful, purposeful, meaningful, something lasting. So we're going to have faith over fear and piano over pandemic. So therefore, we have hashtag piano this pandemic. So if you want to post your progress, use that hashtag and I'll be watching and you can be watching for me as well. Well, as I've shared with you before, I've been reading through the Bible and it is taking me a minute. I started sometime in February, I think, and I'm only in Numbers chapter three. That's mostly because I can only process about a chapter or two at a time. I mean, you've been there, the Old Testament. It is a rich and wonderfully complex place to be. If I only had to use one word to describe Genesis to Numbers, it's the word detail. If you've ever wondered if God cares about every detail of your life, just read Leviticus through Numbers, and you'll be convinced. (laughs) You'll also sit with a deep gratitude in your heart for Jesus, and also to the Father who gave Him to us out of His rich and wonderfully complex grace and mercy. My dear friend Lauren Chandler is releasing a Bible study on the book of Numbers, I don't think until after the first of the year, but I'm excited to get my hands on it. And I have to say that I have mad respect for anyone who would want to dig into the book of Numbers and create a study for others to go through it. If you've ever heard about God using a donkey to speak, it can be found in the book of Numbers, chapter 22, in fact. In that same chapter, God also uses a very unlikely suspect to deliver His very own words that will affirm Israel's destiny and fulfilling of God's amazing covenant over them and over us. It's a peculiar man. His name is Balaam. In fact, I don't know why, but we've been watching some of the Avengers lately, and I just, I definitely get Loki. If you've ever seen (laughs) any of the Avengers, I get Loki in my mind for some reason. But Balaam is basically a pagan seer. He's someone who basically gets paid to foresee and predict things and even to bless or curse certain people, places, and things. There's another character, Balak. I'm assuming I'm saying these names right. He basically hires Balaam to come and curse the people of Israel because Balak is super afraid of them. They're huge. He's fearful of them. He thinks he's going to get plundered by them. And through Balaam, God shows us that he truly can use anyone and anything to accomplish his purposes. He uses a donkey 
to get Balaam's attention, and then he uses Balaam to get Balak's attention as God literally fills Balaam's mouth three times with his own words that, again, like I said, confirm that Israel is already blessed by God and no man can take that away. Well, as Balaam was delivering God's message to Balak, high up on this hill where he could look out and see even just a portion of Israel camp down below, a verse that I don't ever think I've read jumped out at me, and it caught me by surprise and even actually filled my eyes full of tears. It's the back half of Numbers 23, 21, and it says, The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. I couldn't help but be reminded of a time where I looked out over a field of young people. This was 20 years ago this month, and I witnessed that very verse. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. It was a gathering of tens of thousands of young people. It looked like a sea of college students in that field in Memphis, Tennessee. We called it one day, a holy assembly Based around the truth of Psalm 84, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. God had intersected our lives with Louis and Shelley Giglio, the founders of Passion Conferences, at the very beginnings, really, of their ministry. So we've been a part of it from the very first Passion Conference in 1997. But this particular gathering was different. There were no bells and whistles. The stage and lights were minimal at best. We had a muddy field that day. We had prayers and songs stirring in our hearts. And we had a shout of a king among us. If you want to see what this shout looked like among us, I'm sure Passion Conferences still sells that one-day DVD. It was an incredible gathering There's also a video of it up on YouTube, and if you go there and search One Day Live Full Video, you can find it, and there's one particular moment that I'll never, ever forget. It was when Beth Moore stood in front of the students with her hair up in a messy bun and a big oversized hunter green sweatshirt. If you skip ahead in that video to about 10 minutes and 12 seconds in, you can find this particular moment. She had us in the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, that afternoon. It says this, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. But then he says this, and this section is titled, Besides me, there is no God. Verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any." 
God is reminding us here of the stipulations of his covenant. For Israel to be God's people and him their God, they must not have any other gods before him. And we've talked about this many times on this podcast. This still stands for us today. For God to truly be able to pour out his spirit on us like water on thirsty land, we must not have any other gods before him. Hence the next section about the folly of idolatry. And this is what Beth had us in that day. Verse 12, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat and roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern For he has shut their eyes so they cannot see and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie? in my right hand. Beth said this to us that day, and I quote, to you and me, when it talks about what is in our right hand, it means this, what are we leaning on for our strength and our security? What is it we are hanging on to with our right hand that is more important to us than God? Beth had every student, every person in that moment up on their feet, And she had us all raise our hand, our right hand, forming a fist in the air. And with our eyes shut tight, standing there before the Lord as a picture of a generation, she had us name what was in our right hand. She asked us, what are you holding there? She went on, if it's anything but Jesus Christ, can you say this thing in my right hand is a lie? She invited all of us to just begin crying it out. And all across that muddy field, students just began crying out loud to God. And it culminated into this moment where the entire field rose up with a shout of a king among us as we declared tens of thousands of us together, you are the Lord, there is no other. I wanted to share this as my own little way of commemorating one day 2000, because it marked me and it changed me forever. But also as a banner over us approaching Psalm 119 together again today, let us do this as a people with a shout of a king among us. To say with our lives all over again today with a spirit of consecration, you are the Lord, there is no other. As you know, this beautiful Psalm is an acrostic. 
yet another indicator that God is a God of detail. And we've been following along with each Hebrew letter and delving in a bit to see this wonderfully complex and beautiful symbolism that is the Hebrew alphabet. Our letter for today is the letter Vav. All of my research today on this letter Vav I got from HebrewForChristians.com. Vav in the pictograph, as we talked about before, the pictograph was what God would have used when he wrote with his finger the Ten Commandments on those stones. The pictograph of Vav was a picture of a tent peg. And later in the Old Testament, in Exodus 27, 9 through 10, we see that a Vav was a silver hook that was used to hold down the curtain that enclosed the tabernacle each time it was assembled in the wilderness. The first Vav appears in the Torah, first five chapters of the Bible, in Genesis 1.1. The placement of it suggests two of its essential connective powers, joining heaven and earth. If you think about it, this is what the assembled tabernacle first did. It connected a holy God with mere humans. So I've not really spoken about this, but every Hebrew letter actually has a numerical value called gematria. We learned a lot about this in Israel, as our Jewish guide would tell us the numerical value of certain letters or things, and we were all kind of piecing things together, but it all has massive significance in Jewish culture and even in the Bible. And the different parts of a letter can be added up. For instance, the letter Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, it equals one, but the different parts of the letter... We've talked about the yods and the vavs, which are kind of just different parts of the letters sticking out. Those all count for something and can be added up. And in this case, aleph can also equal 26. This is the same number as the sacred name of God that we talked about last time that could only be written as the four letters Y-H-V-H. Well, vav represents the number six. And it has long been associated with the number of man, according to Jewish tradition. Man was created on the sixth day. Man works for six days and then rests. The beast or the Antichrist is identified as having the number of a man or humanity's number. His number will be 666, which you can read about that in Revelation 13. And last, this is really interesting to me. Again, this is on HebrewForChristians.com. According to Jewish tradition, there are six millennia before the coming of the Messiah. Well, we are currently in the Hebrew year 5780. That means according to classical Jewish sources, we are within 220 years of the Messiah coming. In Judaism, of course, they believe that the Messiah is yet to come and that he will do so no later than the year 2240. Well, for those of us who are Christ followers, we believe, of course, that Christ already came in the form of a baby, God's only son, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and he is indeed the Messiah from David's line. He fulfilled every prophecy. He is the Christ. His death paid the final debt once and for all for those who believe upon his name for the forgiveness of sin. He rose up from the grave and then he ascended to the Father so that the Holy Spirit, who is also the Spirit of Christ, could come. And by the Spirit of God, lighting the flame, the disciples, and then of course you and I get to carry out the Great Commission to spread the name of Jesus and make disciples of all men. Well, Jesus told us that 
No one knows the hour of the day or the decade or the millennia for that matter. But what Jesus did say is that we would be able to know and discern the season of His coming if we're watchful and we're awake. He said in Matthew 24, verse 32, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that He is near at the very gates. So we may not know the day or the hour, but Jesus made it clear actually several times that we would know the seasons. Well, back to the letter of Av. Interestingly enough, the Hebrew calendar starts at the time of creation. And it's always been believed in Judaism that six millennia would need to pass before the Messiah would come. Of course, for us, this would be the return of Jesus Christ as promised. Many scholars believe that when Peter describes the day of the Lord's coming in 2 Peter chapter 3, that he sets up this idea here of possibly there being six millennia before the coming of the Lord. When he says in verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So again, going back to this number six, the number for man is six. We were created on the sixth day and then God rested. Some scholars believe that for every day of the six days of creation, possibly a millennia exists to represent that day. And this can still stand for those of us who believe that God created the world in six different 24-hour periods where there was morning and evening in the same day. The idea is that possibly Peter was pointing to some mystery when he said, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. That could mean a multitude of things. He could be speaking of what life will be like with God in eternity someday. I'm just simply here with a big, beautiful what if. I don't know about you, but it makes me excited to think that we are possibly within 200 years or so of Christ's return. Yes, Jesus said we wouldn't know the day or the hour, but He did tell us, those of us who truly know Him, to look forward to His coming. You didn't think I was going to go there, did you? (laughs) All that came from a Hebrew letter of the alphabet. Amazing. I can actually feel my pulse rising a little bit just thinking about all of that. I think another really beautiful thing to point out, a very, very important thing, is that second half of what Peter told us in that passage I read just a minute ago. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Those are covenant words, like Psalm 119. Beloved, the God we run to together today, He is full of mercy. So every time you wonder, is He really ever coming back? Even when we are possibly someday scoffed at for still believing it, remember, He is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, meaning He's not just messing with us. He's not just leaving us here to fend for ourselves. He's actually with us here and now by His Spirit and through us. He is already representing Himself to the world so that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is merciful. That's powerful. God, we stop right now and even just praise you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for providing for us Jesus, and we receive him and his life and pray that by your spirit, Lord, 
literally from you, that we would be able to show Jesus to the world, especially if we are really in the last bit of this age, God. If we're holding on to anything but you for security, Lord, give us the grace to deliver ourselves over to you, Lord, and say, this thing I've been holding in my right hand, I confess it's a lie. And I say with all my heart, Lord, that you are the Lord and there is no other. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're going to find ourselves a bit deep into the singer's song. In fact, it's the first time in Psalm 119 that we will hear the words steadfast love. And then it sort of just continues all throughout the psalm from there, as if something finally birthed in the singer after he was just faithful to keep singing it over and over. I cannot believe, and the same is true for us today, that after all this time that the singer has been asking, seeking, and knocking, that God has been faithfully answering his cry, answering his cry to teach him his ways and give him understanding. And now it's culminated into his affections being stirred up for God. Our affections are found in our soul. It has to do with our life's appetites, our desires, our longings, our loves. And after being obedient to ask, seek, and knock, It's as if the singer has finally reached a tipping point and the supernatural love for God has welled up inside of him and he's singing about it for the first time here. I think I've shared with you before that often one of the prayers that I pray for my children weekly, if not daily when I'm thinking about it, is I pray that God will stir their affections for him because I believe that obedience will flow out of that place. We talk a lot about order, right? Even living from the bullseye and how that affects everything else we do. It affects our decisions and how we even choose to obey the Lord. That can stir from our affections But we also talk about holding both sides of the tension, don't we? It's just, it's somehow in the middle somewhere. Because I'm also seeing here the beauty of those affections finally stirring after the singer has just been faithful to set his feet on the narrow path to walk in the way of the Lord. So this kind of causes a new prayer to rise up in my own life for myself, for my children, for my husband, that also God would give us a supernatural determination to walk in his ways. That is Psalm 119, just supernatural determination to just walk in the way of the Lord. And that even in that, our affections would eventually be deeply stirred for God. So I'm actually seeing that getting to a place of soul abandonment with God actually takes us living some life, doesn't it? This helped me to have grace for where my kids are. And as I said, it taught me a new prayer for them, that Jesus Christ would have mercy on them as they must go through experiencing for themselves that nothing in this world satisfies. We have to know it deep down, don't we, that nothing else will do. As I read today's passage, listen and see if you can hear the singer's affections toward God sort of bookending our passage today. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 119, verses 41 through 48. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. 
I will keep your law continually, forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. So the singer asks, and I hope you'll remember that all of these things are things that you may ask today, that the steadfast love of the Lord come to him, his salvation according to his promise. In fact, he's very much putting these two things in the same camp, God's steadfast love and his salvation. And because his steadfast love is his covenant love, which is ultimately his rescue of us, as we've been talking about, we can see and sing of his salvation and his mercies today beyond just our eternal security, but into our most mundane moments today, places that we just need to see his mercies in big and even really small ways and his rescue in every single part of our lives. I love what Charles Spurgeon said in his book, The Golden Alphabet, which is all about Psalm 119. He said, What a group of mercies are heaped together in the one salvation of our Lord Jesus. It includes the mercy that spares us until our conversion and leads us to that conversion. We have calling mercy, regenerating mercy, converting mercy, justifying mercy, and pardoning mercy. Nor can we exclude from complete salvation any of those many mercies that conduct the believer safely to glory. Salvation is a collection of mercies, incalculable in number, priceless in value, unending in application, and eternal in endurance. To the God of our mercies be glory, world without end. As I read verse 43, And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I couldn't help but think about being raised in Christian school and doing the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States every morning, but also to the Christian flag. Do you remember it if you learned it? I pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and to the Savior for whose kingdom it stands, one brotherhood uniting all Christians in service and love. I don't know, somehow I see the singer standing there pledging to the Lord with his hand over his heart saying, and take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. He's not taking this lightly, y'all. Just like when I stood there with my hand over my heart as a sixth grade kid, pledging my all to the Christian flag and the Savior for whose kingdom it stands, I didn't take it lightly either. Why is his word in our mouth something worth fighting for or pledging our all for? Because as we've been learning, his word in our mouth hopefully means his word is in our heart. And again, these are grace-filled words of invitation. We pledge while also saying, like we learned in verse 8 at the very beginning, and do not forsake me deeply. This is a reminder. We can't pledge to do anything without him. It has to be by his spirit. It has to be from his life. All this must be born out of our trust in him to accomplish all of this through us by his spirit. Maybe that's a fresh prayer wherever you are right now. Holy Spirit, I surrender to you and invite you to come and live your life through me. Accomplish all that I pledge to you through me and let it all come from you today. 
Say that in Jesus' name. If you need to pause and pray that prayer right now, do that. That's a beautiful prayer. It'll change your life. Verse 44 and 45, they say, I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I love how this shows the upside down kingdom of God right here. In Matthew 7, 13 through 14, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So here we see this great juxtaposition that the narrow path that leads to life leads us to be able to walk in a wide place. What is narrow in God's kingdom ends up being a vast and free place for us to roam. And here's that bookended affection again as we look at the last few verses here together. Verse 47 and 48, For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. I love what Spurgeon also wrote on this. Spurgeon calls the singer David. Most likely it is David. We've been calling him the singer. But he says, David declares that he loved the Lord's commands. And by his own admission, he unveils the reason for his delight in them. Where our love is, there is our delight. David did not delight in the courts of kings, for there he found much that might tempt him and result in his being ashamed of himself. His heart was in them, and they gave him supreme pleasure. No wonder he spoke about keeping the law, which he loved. Jesus says, He who loves me will keep my words. That's John 14, 23. No wonder he spoke about walking in liberty and speaking boldly, for true love is forever free and fearless. Love is the fulfilling of the law. And where love of the law of God reigns in the heart, the life must be full of blessedness. Lord, let your mercies come to us that we may love your word and way and find our entire delight in them. I think this helps us see why the singer says that he loves and delights in God's commandments and he even lifts up his hands toward them. Of this, Spurgeon says, the phrase lift up my hands is very full of meaning and without a doubt, the sweet singer meant all we can see in it and a great deal more. Again, he declares his love for a true heart loves to express itself. It is a kind of fire which must send forth its flames. It was natural that he would reach out toward a law in which he delighted, just like a child holds out its hand to receive a gift it desires. When such a lovely object as holiness is set before us, we are bound to rise toward it with our whole nature. And until it is fully accomplished, we should at least lift up our hands in prayer toward it. Where holy hands and holy hearts go, the whole person will one day follow. I can't think of a better phrase to sum up today's episode or this whole series for that matter. Where holy hands and holy hearts go, the whole person will one day follow. So this isn't just about our mundane today. This is about our children's mundane and their children's children. This is our legacy. You are leaving a legacy. I'll close with this. I've recently been helping my mom and dad go through literally all of our memories. 
As many of you know, my mom and dad moved here last summer, and they downsized quite a bit from their home in Oklahoma. They went from a traditional four-bedroom, two-story home to a tiny cottage on a hill here in Tennessee. Well, when they first arrived, the easiest thing to do was to put most of their stuff in storage so that they could get moved in and settled. And as you know, my dad has been pastoring a church now, so they needed to hit the ground running with that. So it was only last week that we went out and got the rest of their things out of storage, and we started the process of going through and letting go of some things and figuring out, of course, how to best steward the things that we are going to keep since their space is limited in their little cottage. Well, my mom is a peacemaker who is very sentimental, and as we all know, that sometimes culminates into keeping every little thing because every little thing means something to someone in her eyes. So I was able to help as one of her offspring to you know, verify the things that really do have special meaning and things that I know collectively, speaking on behalf of my brothers, that we can just let go of. So as we purged the things that I knew that not even Goodwill would take, (laughs) we also got to savor the things when we came upon them that were truly special and kind of sacred. And what made each of those items special and sacred, of course, was not the item, but it was the person that was attached to those items. For instance, we found my granddad's carpentry notebook and the carpentry pencil he used. We found his wallet And what little treasures he had inside of that. It was his wallet that he had at the time that he went home to be with Jesus. We have his dog tags from the war, two of his uniforms from the Navy, and countless photographs, of course, of both grandparents and great-grandparents and even great-greats on both sides. We've got some of those things passed down. But it was the things that they had written, really, that had captivated us the most. Of course, finding their Bibles, this was a treasure My children can see the Bibles of their great-grandparents. Well, one thing we have in abundance of, actually, is jewelry from both my mother's side and my father's side. Well, I assure you that there's actually no fine jewelry anywhere to be found. In fact, the only real gold is probably at best a sliver or two of a wedding band that's left. The jewelry we have from Georgia, who was my dad's mama, She mostly collected as prizes because she was one of the best Avon ladies in all of the land. Her Avon business was outstanding, and she actually won numerous awards for her salesmanship. But my dad would tell you this, it was all just a cover-up so that she'd have a way into people's homes in order to be able to share the gospel. And it was the same with her husband, my grandpa Judd Hill. They might not have left me a nest egg in the bank somewhere, or a legacy of fine jewelry, but they left a legacy of walking in the way of the Lord. And they shared the gospel. They reached out to people. They brought people to church with them. They loved and walked in the way of the Lord. And it was the same for my granny and granddad on my mama's side. My granny sold Mary Kay on the side, and then she worked as a real estate agent. And my granddad built custom homes in a small town in Oklahoma. But I'll tell you this, One of the most beautiful moments of my life was sitting in both of their memorial services and getting to hear story after story of the people whose hearts that Dee and Lurling Gattenby touched through the years. They truly were the hands and feet of Jesus to so many people around them, going out of their way to speak to people, meet new people, introduce us to those people. They hired people, often marginalized people, 
They hosted lots of gatherings in their home and even larger gatherings in parks where we'd enjoy music and singing and food and fellowship. In fact, my granddad's birthday was in May, and he would have been 98 this year. He always used his birthday as an excuse to throw a huge party, which actually looked like, I'm not joking, droves of people gathering at our local park for his very own music festival. He'd rent the indoor facility at the park, and he would have an entire bluegrass band set up to play all afternoon and into the evening. Everyone who came brought a potluck dish. So there was a Southern food dessert line for miles, which was, of course, every kid's dream. And he always had me sing or share something, even when I was just little. But looking back now, I realize that none of it was ever about him. It was all about the people that God had brought around him and my granny, family and friends and music, but always new friends too, that they were reaching out to and just sharing God's love with. This is my legacy and the inheritance that my sweet parents, Lynn and Susan Hill, have stewarded beautifully, walking in the way of the Lord all these years, still extending the love of the Lord and even pastoring their little flock into their 70s. Because where holy hands and holy hearts go, the whole person will one day follow. This is lifelong and even long after us, y'all. Take a few minutes today. Consider your legacy. It might look like little minutes in your mundane right now, like my grandmother used to write in her little day timer, which I have now, and I can see every penny she spent and every little task she completed each day. But beloved, Your little minutes are going to culminate into a legacy. Each moment, a chance to lift up holy hands and declare, Lord, let your steadfast love come to me today. That counts for something, something great and lasting, where your whole person, all of you, and all those after you who are in your care might continue to walk in the way of the Lord until he returns. What a beautiful legacy. I'll talk to you soon.